Those of you who are fond of watching spectator sports will know that one of the, uh, the great worldwide events of sports is coming up very soon. It's coming in 2020, the Summer Olympics. Now, I watch it sometimes and other times not so much, but one of the things that I remember most, though, is watching the Winter Olympics in 2010 when it took place in Vancouver. Vancouver is my hometown. My parents went to some of the events, and they told me a lot about the sorts of things that were going on and the parties and the atmosphere that happened in Vancouver during those Olympics. And so I paid more attention to it than I usually do. Because Olympics, in a lot of ways, seems like it's just watching really talented people do things. But what I remember about 2010 was watching not just the Olympics, but watching the proceedings before it. You see, before the Olympics, every year, they light a torch in Greece uh, in Athens, Greece. And they bring whatever that light is, they bring a torch to whatever country is celebrating the Olympics that year, and typically the country will then have a torch relay. And so, of course, what they'll do is, is they'll light the torch, and sometimes they have, you know, athletes, Olympic athletes who are being uh, asked to do this, but you also have uh, past athletes. So you had uh, not only Sidney Crosby running in the torch, but we also found Rain Gretzky, uh, who is an athlete now retired. You also found uh, sportscasters, and sometimes you found uh, people like Shania Twain were carrying the torch there in the lead-up to the 2010. These are uh, as well mixed with average Canadians who might not be household names. Why I found that interesting was is that it's clearly an attempt that the Olympic Committee does, and particularly the Canadian in this example, of saying this is not just something that you're watching on the screen seeing highly talented elite athletes cooperating or competing. It's also something that all of us as Canadians have a stake in. And so average people carrying the torch until finally they bring it to Vancouver and they light that uh, pyre there in Vancouver and it's continued to be light lit all throughout the Olympics. It symbolizes that this is something that's not just the athletes, it's something that all of us have a part in, big or small. I mention that because I think this kind of concept is exactly what St. Paul is talking about in the letter uh, to Timothy that we just read a few minutes ago. Because our first lesson was St. Paul's second letter to Timothy, and he's writing to his protege, Timothy, and what he says again and again is not to focus on the, the faith that Timothy has as a result of his own personal decisions or personal actions. What he keeps talking about is how faith is a gift from God that Timothy received, and he has a responsibility to guard this treasure of faith like that Olympic torch until he can pass it on to another generation. St. Paul is writing, I've given you and participated in giving you this torch, and I'm entrusting you with this torch of faith. I'm trusting you to teach others so that they might carry that torch and ensure that the church has a life for many generations to come. I'd like to speak to you about that, about that basic concept about faith being something that is meant to be passed on to future generations and how we are guardians of that faith, about how it is that this challenges our modern church conception about what faith is, and then to end with giving you a few practical challenges and hopefully a few practical hints about how it is that we actually do this and hold on to our faith in a way that is more than just individual, but also has got a stronger sense of our responsibility to generations yet to come. Now, why do I say that this is something that uh, reminds me of the torch and it reminds me about how faith is meant to be something uh, that is more than just my relationship to Jesus, but is meant to be something carried and treasured for the sake of others? Listen as I uh, read off some of the first verses of chapter 1 in 2 Timothy and pay attention to what Paul says, but also pay attention to what he doesn't say, even though you might expect him to say it. 
Listen to the kind of ways he describes faith. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, I'm grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did. Later on, he says, in verse 5, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. Later on, he says, <clears throat> verse 12, I know the one in whom I put my trust. I'm sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the Holy Spirit living in us. Now, listen to what he says, and if you're listening to what he says, uh, he's actually pointing an awful lot not to the individual choices that Timothy or others are making in accepting faith. He's paying an awful lot of attention to the communal element about how faith is something that is not just for Timothy and not just for Paul, but instead is an element that is part of God gathering a people for his name. If you listened in verse 3, what did you notice? Paul says, I worship with a clear conscience as my ancestors did. He says, this is a faith my ancestors had and I share, but yet Paul doesn't say what I would have thought he would say. This is a faith that I received when I was on a donkey going to Damascus, wanting to persecute the church, and we're told in Acts chapter 9 that God speaks to Paul, and he blinds him with a literal blinding light. He falls off his donkey or his horse, and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul uh, says, Lord, who are you? And then it says, uh, in response to heaven, say, it's Jesus whom you persecute. Jesus individually picks Saul out, changes his name to Paul. He becomes the great missionary to the Gentiles because of Christ giving individual attention to this person who's led astray and calling him to follow him. But Paul does not emphasize that Jesus called me personally for a relationship with him. What does he emphasize? This is the same faith that has been passed on from generation to generation to generation, and I am simply the latest in a long string of faithful Jewish people who is following God. Same thing when he says to Timothy. He doesn't say, Timothy, don't forget that you heard the gospel that I told you, and you embraced it, and you decided to make Jesus your Lord. Instead, he says, remember the faith your grandmother Lois had, who passed it on to your mother Eunice, and who passed it on to you? He emphasizes the continuity that this is something like a torch passed from generation to generation to generation. In fact, even when he talks about Timothy's faith, he doesn't say, do you remember when you made a commitment to Jesus? Instead, what does he say? He says, remember to rekindle or to keep strong that faith that is within you through the laying on of my hands. This is a gift I, another older generation, gave to you, and you hold it only because I gave it to you. Keep this strong, keep the flame going so that one day you will give it to somebody else. And then he closes this. And when Paul is talking about, I know the one in whom I've put my trust, and then he later says, I've entrusted this faith to you, Timothy. I think what he's saying is, Timothy, I've been working hard for the gospel, and now Paul is in prison. He says he's a prisoner for God. And that probably means he's literally a prisoner. Church tradition suggests that this is the last thing Paul ever wrote. Because he knew his death was coming, church tradition says he was killed by the emperor Nero. And he's passing on these last words to Timothy saying, I've run this battle. I've done all I can. I carried the torch as far as I can, but I'm trusting you with it. I want you to run with it so that you can pass it on to the next generation.
Paul is saying this is a precious gift. It is not just something for you. It is something to carry and to hold and to make sure it's passed faithfully on to others. That's something really important for us to understand is faith not just a personal thing, but instead something that carries with it responsibility to pass on to future generations because that goes against the grain of so much of what our modern life tends to tell us and even what the modern church tends to tell us. One of the things that the modern world tells us all the time is that in fact we should not hold on to responsibilities given to us by our ancestors. I mean, after all, think about the number of ways in which we in daily life no longer practice the traditions our ancestors once gave. Yes, sometimes we do around Christmas, but so many of the things that used to be common life no longer are. In fact, more than that, so many of the things that have been passed away are things that have been superseded because of the amount of consumer choice we have in this world. My children and I used to love reading those Little House on the Prairie stories. Do you read any of those? What's really interesting about those stories is not just pioneer life, but they go into so much detail. Like there's a whole couple of chapters, I think it's called Little House in the Big Woods that we were reading, where the whole couple of chapters are about how they make cheese, right? So about how he barters with his neighbor to get a little piece of rennet, which is a, a piece of the, the calf's stomach, which I didn't realize goes into making cheese, but apparently it does, because it's got a little enzyme that clots the cheese, and then they've got all of this milk that they've milked from a cow, and I won't bore you with all of that. But it actually wasn't boring. It was interesting. And they had this ritual in which every time at this certain time of the year, they'd make a lot of cheese, and they'd tell you about all the ways you do it, and then put it up in the attic and pull it out after a certain few months. How many of us regularly uh, indulge in the tradition of making cheese? Not many of us, probably at all. Many of those traditions go by the wayside, and instead, what do we do? We even pick it up at the grocery store. And if the grocery store isn't doing it for me, I go to a different grocery store. It's not like my daily tradition of going down to the village butcher to pick something up and get and barter from Gus. It's all anonymous. There's no sense of being handed down. You get what you get because you're the consumer. I think even about going to do simple things like picking up a, a bottle of shampoo. You go down to the store and what's amazing to us and we so much take for granted is the dizzying array of choices out there. I was watching a, a show on, on Amazon Prime, if you watch it, called Comrade Detective. Maybe you've never seen it, but it's, it's this satire, but it's set in 1980s Romania, and it's sort of, uh, the assumption is it was made by Romanian state television, so they're all eager to tell you how awesome communism is, except they go into this store and they see in the grocery store and bragging about how communism now brings us a whole type of soap. It brings us a cabbage. It brings us this, and then I walk into Loblaws, and I got a hundred different types of soap, and I get to choose between a million different ones, a million different shampoos, and I can choose even the shampoo I want that has sea salt in it, whether I want it from the Mediterranean or Himalayan sea salt. We've come to believe in our culture that the consumer is king and that we are the ones that must be satisfied. And sometimes, unfortunately, we talk about that way when we talk about church. I grew up in an evangelical church for which I'm deeply grateful. So much was really good about it. And my faith uh, exists because of that, the, the teaching there and that my parents taught me. But some of the ways that sometimes we get into talking about our faith and how we came to faith actually suggests that it's me who gets all the bragging rights and it's all about me. Think about saying I decided to follow Jesus or I accepted Jesus into my heart or, or now I consider Jesus my Lord. Sometimes it sounds like we put Jesus down in the chair and we interviewed him to see whether he's going to fit our personal uh, maturity goals. 
You know, I interviewed Buddha and I didn't think he was really up to snuff. I had a few conversations with Muhammad and I thought, you know, there's a few things in his resume I didn't like very much. I sat Jesus down and I thought, you know what, I think I like the cut of your jib. But the problem is, I'm not sure if I like uh, Catholic Jesus or Lutheran Jesus. Uh, the Pentecostal Jesus is a little bit wingy, so I'm not going to go with Pentecostal Jesus. Why don't I cover the bases and get an Anglican and Lutheran Jesus, and I'm totally good. <laughs> the problem is, is that that's never how Scripture presents it. Yes, he is a personal Savior who calls us by name. He tells us that when one sheep is lost, he goes out to find it, puts it on his shoulders, because he loves each sheep and names them by name. We are named by God. We're known as individuals, but we come to faith because Jesus acts through other people and other generations to inspire them by their words and their example to bring the faith that allows us to come to know Jesus. And St. Paul emphasizes that it requires a community for people to come to faith and for the faith to live on from generation to generation. You know that old saying, it takes a village to raise a child? It's really true. A child cannot be raised just because one person loves them. A child is raised because there is a sense of community around that says we have a collective responsibility to protect the children of our neighborhood, to enlarge their lives, to help them to grow, and to help them to flourish. And that is what I think Paul stresses here. We cannot simply believe that we are individual Christians who Jesus loves and that's enough. We need to understand that we are part of something greater than ourselves. And Jesus has given to us through our ancestors and through the people that have come to introduce us to Christ. He has given us a sacred responsibility, the same one he gave to Timothy. This is a precious inheritance. Do not take it lightly, but stoke it, kindle it, keep that fire going so that you can pass it on. We are here today because countless generations of Christians have done that. He's encouraging us to ask, what are we doing to ensure countless generations of Christians to come have faith because of what we did with the torch that was given? Now, those are all things that I think are challenging to us, and I think that's the main thrust. But I also mentioned to you, I wanted to say that there's a couple of things that in particular I think it means for us. And the first word I really want to address to you is, is particularly towards parents and grandparents about the responsibilities we have literally to passing it on to the next generation in our family. Do you notice how um, St. Paul mentions when he talks about Timothy's faith? He mentions two faithful holy women. He mentions Lois, Timothy's grandmother, and he mentions Eunice, Timothy's mother. Sad reality that oftentimes fathers uh, do not play the faith part that they should in their family life. And as you look around most churches you go to, bravo to you dudes who are here today. Because most churches are in fact two-thirds women. It says something about women's faithfulness. It says many things, unfortunately, about our culture telling men that faith is not as important as it should be. There's, there's lots of layers in there. But what I really wanted to focus on is the importance that these women that we know nothing about, all we know is that they held the faith, and they held the faith to the next generation, and that faith was passed on to Timothy, who we do know a lot about and had a pivotal role in the church. Do we see this challenge that Paul is giving to Timothy as a challenge that the Holy Spirit is giving to you and to me? And even if you don't biologically have children who are with you, we've got an awful lot of children who learn a lot about the faith because of the way that we treat them. Do we welcome? Do we love them? Or do we treat them like an annoyance that God's to be getting rid of? How many people in their adult life look back and wonder, why is it that I left the faith? It's because the church I was part of clearly made it, uh, made it clear to me I wasn't really wanted there. 
Here's one of the things that I think is really interesting, the, the way that faith has been presented throughout the whole of the scriptures. And it's not starting with Paul, but Paul alludes to it when he says, my ancestors shared the same faith with me. There was always a strong emphasis in saying that a family has a sacred responsibility through its actions and its words and its rituals to pass on faith to the next generation. Listen to the words of what um, Exodus tells us. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and this is something that's happening way back in Israel's history. Israel is, uh, at this point, slaves in Egypt. God sends Moses, a prophet, to rescue them, and he rescues them through miraculous signs. There's tremendous things, plagues, and all the things uh, that you can read about in the first chapters of Exodus. But when it gets to Exodus chapter 12, God says, I'm going to do this mighty final act, which will finally break the resistance of the Pharaoh and convince him he's happy to let these Israelites go and get out of his hair. He tells them to do a ceremony of slaughtering a lamb and to eat it uh, very quickly and to cast out the leavened bread, that's bread that has yeast in it because it's a symbol of corruption. And, and he says, eat your food, fully clothed, standing, ready to go. And he says, do all of these things for an interesting reason. And this is what he says. The reason is, <clears throat> he says, you shall observe this rite as a perpetual ordinance for you and for your children. That's Exodus 12, verse 24. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this observance. That's the observance of the Passover. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed down and worshipped, and the Israelites went and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. The scriptures are full of these things throughout the Old Testament. Do this festival. And why do you do this festival? It's not just to remind you and to celebrate what God has done for you. It is so your children in your midst will ask the right kind of questions. Why are we eating a lamb tonight? Why are we standing up uh, as if we're ready to go? Why are we getting rid of this unleavened bread? Well, let me tell you, daughter, let me tell you, son, we're doing this because the very reason we exist as Jewish people is because of this thing that God did long ago in rescuing our people when they were going to be destroyed. I think that is an important example for us as parents and grandparents. Not that we always need to, to sort of rehearse the same Jewish festivals, but to ask ourselves, are we speaking and living in such a way that our children are asking the right questions about our faith? Dad, why do you always go and shovel Mr. So-and-so's walk across the street even though he's a grumpy jerk? <laughs> Dad, I know you love baseball and watching the World Series, but why is it that you're going to a Bible study on Thursday instead of watching the World Series? Mom, why is it that you're always helping this person with groceries next door? And why is it that you ask my forgiveness when you make a mistake? I'm just a kid. Adults don't have to do anything to impress children. Are your children asking those kind of questions? Because if they are, it provides the opportunity for you to say, you know what I'm doing for Mr. So-and-so across the street? Yeah, I know he's unpleasant. Because Jesus told a story long ago about a man who was beaten and left by the side of the road and an unlikely stranger came, a good Samaritan who helped him. And Jesus said, that is what it means to love your neighbor. And that's what I'm doing. Do you know why I come down and ask your forgiveness when I've made a mistake? Because long ago, Jesus, our Lord, Though he was the Lord and God over all the earth and the leader of his disciples, on the night he was to be betrayed, sat them down and said, let me serve you. And so he washes their feet. And that's why I say, forgive, ask, me, or ask you to forgive me, even though you were my subordinate. 
Do you live a life and act in the ways and speak in the ways that allow your children to say, why is it that faith is important and why should I follow it? Kids got lots of questions. Live a life and speak in such a way that your kids ask the right ones and they come to know who Jesus is. For us, I know as parents, it's really tough. You're, you're taking them to the piano. You're taking them to this and this and this. Don't put it on as a burden like I'm trying to guilt you. I know it's tough being a parent. Start thinking about how you answer that challenge God gives to you and say, how in ways that won't drive me nuts and break my spirit. And I pass on the faith to my kids and pray for them, maybe read them Bible stories, but most of all, to live the kind of life that makes them know who Jesus is because they see it. But here's the last thing. If you're not a parent or grandparent and you think you're let off the hook, tough luck because I'm going to get you. Not only is Paul talking to Timothy about his mother and grandmother and about the importance of passing it on, through the family, he's also talking to Timothy, who is a leader in the church, and about his responsibility to guard the faith so that, that church won't die with him. Will we listen to this and see that there's a challenge for us here at Good Shepherd to ask, what will we do to respond to that same challenge for this church? You know, the church is a place that is wonderful in so many ways. I think you can list some of the things that make this church a great church, and they aren't necessarily big, splashy things, but small ones. Friends that you meet who care about you, somebody who calls when you're sick, uh, buddy club when we help uh, special needs kids. Lots of these things you can point to and lots of things that are done so quietly you don't even know that there are saints in our midst serving the community really well. But do you want this place which is a light to you and a light to our community to be a place that for generations to come can continue to be it? It requires more than me standing up and trying to do the best thing I can. I think Paul here is not only saying to Timothy it's important as a leader, he's also telling all of us what is your role and passing the torch so that this church will be a place that lasts for many years to come. And one of the things I've tried to do in my neighborhood is to get to know people, but it's really tough, right? A, because people just drive into their driveway and you don't want to sort of shove your, your foot in the door and say, hey, can I be your neighbor? It's creepy. But one of the things that's also difficult is, is that in that neighborhood I live in, this, the block I'm in, with only you know, a couple of dozen townhomes, I would say there's probably at least a dozen of them have changed hands in the past year. There's always people buying, always people selling. I get to know a neighbor and they're gone. And it's a tough thing. What that means is that the quality of the neighborhood keeps changing. But what will keep it a strong neighborhood? If somebody, like myself, says it's my responsibility to get to know my neighbors to make sure that this stays the kind of pleasant and happy neighborhood that I want it to be. It takes a person saying, I know that it's transient. I know there's a lot that won't continue. So I will do what I can to make sure this continues to be a good neighborhood. Will you do the same thing for your church? Here's a couple of things that I think God calls all of us to do, to examine yourself and ask, what am I doing to guard the faith here? Am I teaching myself about what the faith is so that people who are new, when they ask, why do you do this and what's your faith about and why do you go to church? Are you learning, teaching yourself and opening your heart to know why it is that this church is an important place to you? That is an important way of making sure that new generations to come will hold on to this place and see it as a locus of their faith and continue in it. Do you think about the time you spend? You know, so many of the ways that the church operates, it seems uh, to many of us, if you walk through the door, it just kind of somebody wound it up and it operates on itself, but it doesn't. The bread and wine we put, the bread here is because somebody bakes it. <laughs> And bakes it for us and does that as a labor of love. You know what's going to happen after communion service is over? Some a little magic elf is not going to descend and clean everything. It is somebody who's signed up to serve the church and saying, I'm going to give some of my time. Or we look around at things as mundane as taking out the garbage at the end of a service. It doesn't take it out itself. 
But more than that, in fact, to think, what can I do even if I don't have extra time to do that? Do you see it as a personal challenge Jesus is giving to you to strengthen the bonds of community to make sure that people who fall off the radar, people who are older, people who are sick, people going through tough times, don't get forgotten? Do you know the neighbor you sit next to well enough to actually ask them, how are you doing, and not just be satisfied with fine, but be satisfied to say, well, whatever it is you want to share with him, I am here because i got to make the time. That's a sacrifice. Paul talks about suffering for the gospel. Paul's suffering in prison. Timothy's going to suffer in ways we don't know about. We don't know what happened to Timothy as he grew. But Paul said, you follow a suffering Savior who gave up himself, his own life, and carried the cross for the sake of others, you can bet you're going to suffer a little bit and make uh, things that are difficult for you to do. Here's another thing that none of us want to hear, and sometimes it's difficult to speak. What do you do with your money? Do you realize that what you have in your pocket, the clothes on your back, the air you breathe are gifts from God? And you are not just people given gifts. You are stewards of what God gives you. When God says, I gave you these riches, I gave you this brain, I gave you this ability, I gave you these things to do good things and advance my kingdom, what will you say to him? We'll say, yeah, I knew that was important, but it was more important that I had this, 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 and this. God knows we have our needs. Jesus is clear about that, and he knows we need clothes. He knows our kids need things. But do we know that this church depends on the generosity of those who come saying, yes, I have to make sacrifices to give generously, but I'm willing to do it because I see that God has given to me a torch, a torch passed by generations of people who are generous. And I will not break that torch relay, but instead I will be generous so that future generations can know and trust that there will be a church here who spreads the gospel and teaches the good news to the community around. I say none of those things to guilt you. In the end, Paul says, Scripture says, the church tradition says, I say, that the true lifting goes to the Holy Spirit. If you say, forget this, I'm not going to do it, you know, God will find some other way. But it gives you the privilege, like those people who are average folks carrying a torch to be part of something big, he gives you the privilege to say, I'm going to do it one way or the other. But do you want to join with me? Because you will have the privilege of being part of something big, really big. You will be part of making sure that the church in this place and the church around the world continues to be a beacon of light to the world around. But this is a dark world. This is a world that in so many ways breaks people's hearts. And this church, frankly, breaks people's hearts sometimes. As I know, I have sometimes broken others' hearts. But you will still be part of a place that says, yes, there is a broken body here in the church. But the broken Savior still inhabits it to heal the wounds caused by the world, to heal the wounds caused by the church, heal the wounds that we cause ourselves, and that this Lord says, I want you to be part of this great mission. Let me use you as an instrument of my healing. I'd say that's a pretty good deal, even if it causes a little inconvenience and a little bit of sacrifice from time to time.